Elena Ferrante, The Lying Life of Adults 1. Two years before leaving home, my father said to my mother that I was very ugly. The sentence was uttered under his breath in the apartment that my parents, newly married, had bought at the top of Via San Giacomo del Capri in Rione Alto. Everything, the spaces of Naples, the blue light of a frigid February, those words remained fixed. But I slipped away, and I am still slipping away, within these lines that are intended to give me a story, while in fact I am nothing, nothing of my own, nothing that has really begun or really been brought to completion, only a tangled knot, and nobody, not even the one who at this moment is writing, knows if it contains the right thread for a story or is merely a snarled confusion of suffering without redemption. 2. I loved my father very much. He was an unfailingly courteous man, a refined manner perfectly matched to a body so slender that his clothes seemed a size too large, and this to my eyes gave him a look of inimitable elegance. His features were delicate, and nothing, deep-set eyes with long lashes, impeccably engineered nose, full lips, spoiled their harmony. With me, he had had an air of cheerfulness on every occasion, whatever his mood or mine, and he never shut himself in his study, he was always studying, unless he got at least a smile out of me. He especially liked my hair, but it's hard to say now when he started praising it. Maybe when I was two or three. Certainly, during my childhood, we had conversations like this. What lovely hair, so fine, so shiny. Will you give it to me? No, it's mine. How about a little generosity? If you want, I can lend it to you. Excellent, then I just won't give it back to you. You already have yours. What I have, I took from you. That's not true, you're lying. Check for yourself. Yours was too pretty, and I stole it. I would check, just to play along. I knew he would never steal it. And I laughed. I laughed a lot. I had much more fun with him than with my mother. He always wanted something of mine. My ear, my nose, my chin. They were so perfect, he said. He just couldn't live without them. I loved that tone, which proved to me over and over again how indispensable I was to him. Naturally, my father wasn't like that with everyone. At times, when he was really caught up in something, he tended to frantically mash together sophisticated arguments and uncontrolled emotions. At other times, instead, he was curt, resorting to brief, extremely precise phrases so dense that no one could refute them. These were two fathers, very different, very different from the one I loved, and I had started to discover their existence at the age of seven or eight, when I heard him arguing with the friends and acquaintances who on occasion came to our house for meetings that could become very heated, on issues I knew nothing about. In general, I stayed with my mother in the kitchen, and paid little attention to the squabbling just a little way off. 
but sometimes, when my mother was busy and closed herself in her room, I was left alone in the hall playing or reading, mostly reading, I'd say, because my father read a lot and my mother too, and I loved being like them. I didn't listen to the arguments. I broke off my game or my reading only when there was a sudden silence and those alien voices of my father's arose. From then on, he would dominate, and I waited for the meeting to end to find out if he had gone back to his usual self, the one with the gentle and affectionate tones. The night he made that statement, he had just learned that I wasn't doing well in school. It was something new. I had always done well, since first grade, and only in the past two months had I started doing badly. But it was very important to my parents that I be successful in school, and at the first poor grades my mother, especially, was alarmed. What's going on? I don't know. You have to study. I do study. And so? Some things I remember and some I don't. Study until you remember everything. I studied until I was exhausted, but the results continued to be disappointing. That afternoon, in fact, my mother had gone to talk to had gone to talk to the teachers and had returned very unhappy. She didn't scold me. My parents never scolded me. She merely said, "The mathematics teacher is the one who is most dissatisfied." But she says that if you want, you can do it. Then my mother went into the kitchen to make dinner, and meanwhile my father came home. All I could hear from my room was that she was giving him a summary of the teacher's complaints, and I understood that she was bringing up as an excuse the changes of early adolescence. But he interrupted her, and in one of the tones that he never used with me, even giving it in to dialect, which was completely banned in our house, let slip what he surely wouldn't have wanted to come out of his mouth. Adolescence has nothing to do with it. She's getting the face of Victoria. I'm sure that if he'd known I could hear him, he would never have used a tone so far removed from our usual playful ease. They both thought the door of my room was closed. I always closed it, and they didn't realize that one of them had left it open. So it was that, at the age of twelve, I learned from my father's voice, muffled by the effort to keep it low, that I was becoming like his sister, a woman in whom I had heard him say as long as I could remember, ugliness and spite were combined to perfection. Here someone might object, maybe you're exaggerating. Your father didn't say, literally, Giovanna is ugly. It's true. It wasn't in his nature to utter such brutal words, but I was going through a period of feeling very fragile. I'd begun menstruating almost a year earlier. My breasts were all too visible and embarrassed me. I was afraid I smelled bad and I was always washing. I went to bed lethargic and woke up lethargic. My only comfort at that time, my only certainty, was that he absolutely adored me, all of me. So that when he compared me to Aunt Victoria, it was worse than if he'd said, Giovanna used to be pretty, pretty, now she's turned ugly. In my house, the name Victoria was like the name of a monstrous being who taints and infects anyone who touches her. 
I knew almost nothing about her. I had seen her only a few times, but, and at this, and this is the point, all I remembered about those occasions was revulsion and fear. Not the revulsion and fear that she in person could have provoked in me. I had no memory of that. What frightened me was my parents' revulsion and fear. My father always talked about his sister obscurely, as if she practiced shameful rites that defiled her, defiling those around her. My mother never mentioned her, and in fact, in fact when she intervened in her husband's outburst, tended to silence him, as if she were afraid that Victoria, wherever she was, could hear them and would, could, and would immediately come rushing up San Giacomo de Capri, striding rapidly, although it was a long street, steep street, and deliberately dragging behind her all the illnesses from the hospitals in our neighbourhood, that she would fly into our apartment on the sixth floor, smash the furniture, and, emitting drunken flashes from her eyes, hit my mother if she, so much, if she so much as tried to protest. Of course I intuited that behind that tension there must be a story of wrongs done and suffered, but I knew little at the time of family affairs, and above all I didn't consider that terrible aunt a member of the family. She was a childhood bogeyman, a lean, demonic silhouette, an unkempt figure lurking in the corners of houses when darkness falls. Was it possible, then, that without any warning I should discover that I was getting her face? I? I, who until that moment had thought that I was pretty and assumed, thanks to my father, that I would remain so forever. I, who, with this constant affirmation, thought I had beautiful hair, I who wanted to be loved as he loved me, as he had accustomed me to believing I was loved, I who was already suffering because both my parents were suddenly unhappy with me, and that unhappiness distressed me, tarnishing everything. I waited for my mother to speak, but her reaction didn't console me. Although she hated all her husband's relatives and detested her sister-in-law the way you detest a lizard that runs up your bare leg, she didn't respond by yelling at him, You're crazy, my daughter and your sister have nothing in common. She merely offered a weak, laconic, What are you talking about? Of course she isn't. And I, there in my room, hurried to close the door so as not to hear anything else. And then I wept in silence and stopped only when my father came to announce, this time in his nice voice, that dinner was ready. I joined him in the kitchen with dry eyes and had to endure, looking at my plate, a series of suggestions for improving my grades. After it, I went back to pretending to study while they settled in front of the television. My suffering wouldn't end or even diminish. Why had my father made that statement? Why had my mother not forcefully contradicted it? Was there displeasure due to my bad grades? Or was it an anxiety that was separate from school, that had existed for years? And him, especially him, had he spoken those cruel words because of a momentary irritation I had caused him, or, with his sharp gaze, the gaze of someone who knows and sees everything, had he long ago discerned the features of my ruined future, of an advancing evil that upset him, and that he himself didn't know how to respond to? I was in despair all night. 
In the morning I was convinced that, if I wanted to save myself, I had to go and see what Aunt Victoria's face was really like. 3. It was an arduous undertaking. In a city like Naples, inhabited by families with numerous branches that even when they were fighting, even when the fights were bloody, never really cut their ties, my father lived in utter autonomy, as though he had no blood relatives, as if he were self-generated. I had often had dealings with my mother's parents and her brother. They were all affectionate people who gave me lots of presents, and until my grandparents died, first my grandfather and a year later my grandmother, sudden death that had upset me, had made my mother cry the way we girls cried when we hurt ourselves, and my uncle left for a job far away, we had seen him frequently and happily. Whereas I knew almost nothing about my father's relatives. They had appeared in my life only on rare occasions, a wedding, a funeral, and always in a climate of such false affection that all I got out of it was the awkwardness of forced contact. Say hello to your grandfather. Give your aunt a kiss. In those relatives, therefore, I had never been much interested, also because after those encounters my parents were tense and forgot them by mutual consent, as if they'd been involved in some second-rate performance. It should also be said that if my mother's relatives lived in a precise place with an evocative name, Museo, they were the Museo grandparents, the space where my father's relatives lived was undefined, nameless. I knew only one thing for certain. To visit them, you had to go down and down, keep going down into the depths of the depths of Naples, and the journey was so long it seemed to me that we and my father's relatives lived in two different cities. And for a long time that appeared to be true. We lived in the highest part of Naples, and to go anywhere we had inevitably to descend. My father and mother went willingly, only as far as the Vomero, or, with some annoyance, to my grandparents' house in Museo. And their friends were mainly in Via Suarez, Piazza della Artisti, Via Luca Giordano, Via Scarlatti, Via Cimarossa, streets that were well known to me, because many of my schoolmates lived there as well. Not to mention that all led to Villa Floridiana, a park I loved, where my mother had brought me for fresh air and sunshine when I was an infant, and where I had spent pleasant hours with my friends of early childhood, Angela and Ida. Only after those place names, all happily coloured by plants, fragments of the sea, gardens, flowers, games and good manners, did the real descent begin, the one my parents considered irritating, for work, for shopping, for the need that my father in particular had for study and counter and debate, they descended daily, usually on the funiculars, to Chaya, to Toledo, and from there went on to Piazza Plebiscito, the Biblioteca Nazionale, to Port Alba, and via Ventalieri and Via Foria, and, at most, Piazza Carlo Terzo, where my mother's school was. I knew those names well, too, 
My parent mentions them frequently, but didn't often take me there. And maybe that's why the names didn't give me the same happiness. Outside of the Vomero, the city scarcely belonged to me. In fact, the farther it spread on that lower ground, the more unknown it seemed. So it was natural that the areas where my father's relatives lived had, in my eyes, the features of worlds still wild and unexplored. For me not only they were nameless, but from the way my parents referred to them, I felt they must be difficult to get to. The times we had to go there, my mother and father, who usually were energetic and willing, seemed especially wary, especially anxious. I was young, but their tension, their exchanges, always the same, stayed with me. Andrea, my mother, would say in a tired voice, Get dressed, we have to go. But he then went on reading and underlining books with the same pencil used to write in a notebook he had beside him. Andrea, it's getting late. They'll be angry. Are you ready? I'm ready. And the child? The child too. My father then abandoned books and notebooks, leaving them open on the, on the desk, put on a clean shirt, his good suit. But he was taciturn, tense, as if he were rehearsing mentally the lines of an inevitable role. My mother, meanwhile, who wasn't ready at all, kept checking her own appearance, mine, my father's, as if only the proper clothing could guarantee that we would all three return home safe and sound. In sum, it was obvious that, on each of those occasions, they believed they had to defend themselves from people and places of which they said nothing to me, so as not to upset me. But I still noticed the anomalous anxiety, or rather, I recognised it. It had always been there, perhaps the only memory of the stress in a happy childhood. What worried me were sentences like this, uttered in an Italian that, for one thing, seemed, I don't know how to say it, splintered. Remember, if Vittoria says something, pretend you didn't hear. You mean, if she acts crazy, I say nothing? Yes, keep in mind Giovanna's there. All right. Don't say all right if you don't mean it. It's a small effort. We're there half an hour and we come home. I remember almost nothing of those forays. Noise, heat, distracted kisses on the forehead, dialect voices, a bad smell that we probably all gave off out of fear. That climate had convinced me over the years that my father's relatives, howling shapes of repulsive unseemliness, especially Aunt Victoria, the blackest, the most unseemly, constituted a danger, even if it was difficult to understand what the danger was. Was the area where they lived considered risky? Were my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins dangerous, or just Aunt Victoria? Only my parents seemed to be informed, and now that I felt an urgency to know what my aunt was like, what sort of person she was, I would have to, have to ask them in order to get to the bottom of it. But even if I asked them, what would I find out? Either they would silence me with a phrase of good-humoured refusal, you want to see your aunt, you want to visit her, what's the point? Or they would be alarmed and try not to mention her anymore. So I thought that, at least for a start, I'd have to find a picture of her. 4. 
I took advantage of an afternoon when they were both out and went to rummage in a dresser in their bedroom, where my mother kept the albums containing, in an orderly arrangement, the photographs of herself, my father and me. I knew those albums by heart. I had often leafed through them. They mostly documented my parents' relationship and my almost 13 years of life. And so I knew that, mysteriously, there were a lot of pictures of my mother's relatives, very few of my father's, and, among those few, not a single one of Aunt Victoria. Still, I remember that somewhere in that dresser was an old metal box that held random images of my parents before they met. Since I'd hardly ever looked at them, and always with my mother, I hoped to find in there some pictures of my aunt. I found the box in the bottom of the wardrobe, but first I decided to re-examine conscientiously the albums that showed the two of them as fiancés, the two of them as bride and groom frowning at the centre of a small wedding party, the two of them as an always happy couple, and finally me, their daughter, photographed an excessive number of times from birth to now. I lingered in particular on the wedding pictures. My father was wearing a visibly crumpled, dark suit and was scowling in every image. My mother beside him, not in a wedding dress, but in a cream-coloured suit with a veil the same shade, had a vaguely excited expression. I already knew that among the thirty or so guests were some friends from the Vomero they still saw and my mother's relatives, the good grandparents from Museo. But still I looked and looked again, hoping for a figure, even in the background, that would lead me somehow or other to a woman I had no memory of. Nothing. So I moved onto the box and after many attempts managed to get it open. I emptied the contents onto the bed. All the pictures were black and white. The ones of my parents' separate teenage years were in no order. My mother smiling with her classmates, with her friends, at the beach, on the street, pretty and well-dressed, was mixed in with my father, preoccupied, always by himself, never on vacation, pants bunching at the knees, jackets whose sleeves were too short. The pictures of childhood and early, early adolescence had instead been put in order in two envelopes, the ones for my mother's family and those for my father's. My aunt, I told myself, must inevitably be among the latter, and I went on to look at them one by one. There weren't more than about twenty, and it struck me immediately that in three or four of those images my father, who in the others appeared as a child, a boy with his parents or with relatives I'd never met, could be seen, surprisingly, next to a black rectangle drawn with a felt-tipped pen. I immediately understood that that very precise rectangle was a job that he had done diligently and secretly. I imagined him as using a ruler that he had on his desk. He enclosed a portion of the photo in that geometric shape and then carefully went over it with a marker, attentive not to go outside the fixed margins. I had no doubts about that painstaking work. The rectangles were deletions and under that black was Aunt Victoria. 
For quite a while, I sat there not knowing what to do. Finally, I made up my mind, went to the kitchen and found a knife and delicately scraped at a tiny section of the of part of the photograph that my father had covered. I soon realized that only the white of the paper appeared. I felt anxious and stopped. I knew that I was going against my father's will and any action that might further erode his affection frightened me. The anxiety increased when at the back of the envelope I found the only picture in which he wasn't a child or a teenager, but a young man, smiling, as he rarely was in the photos taken before he met my mother. He was in profile, his gaze was happy, his teeth were even and very white. But the smile, the happiness, weren't directed toward anyone. Next to him were two of those precise rectangles, two coffins in which, at a time surely different from the cordial moment of the photo, he had enclosed the bodies of his sister and someone else. I focused on that image for a long time. My father was on a street and was wearing a checkered shirt with short sleeves. It must have been summer. Behind him was the entrance to a shop. All you could see of the sign was Ria. There was a display window, but you couldn't tell what it displayed. Next to the dark patch appeared a bright white lamppost with well-defined outlines. And then there were the shadows, long shadows, one of them cast by an evidently female body. Although my father had assiduously eliminated the people next to him, he had left their trace on the sidewalk. Again, I began to scrape off the ink of the rectangle, very gently, but I stopped as soon as I realized that here, too, only the white appeared. I waited a moment or two and then started again. I worked lightly, hearing my breathing in the silence of the house. I stopped for good only when all I managed to get out of the area where once Victoria's head must have been was a spot, and you couldn't tell if it was the residue of the pen or a trace of her lips. Five. I put everything back in order and tried to repress the threat that I looked like the sister my father had obliterated. Meanwhile, I became more and more distracted and my aversion for school increased, scaring me. Still, I wanted to go back to being a good girl, the way I had been until a few months earlier. It was important to my parents and I thought that if I could get excellent grades again, I would be pretty again too, and good. But I couldn't. In class my mind wandered. At home I wasted my time in front of the mirror. In fact, looking at myself became an obsession. I wanted to know if my aunt really was peeking out through my body, and since I didn't know what she looked like, I searched for her in every detail that marked a change in myself. Thus, features that I hadn't noticed before became evident. Thick eyebrows, eyes that were too small and dull brown, an exaggeratedly high forehead, thin hair, not at all beautiful, or maybe not beautiful anymore, that was pasted to my head, big ears with heavy lobes, a short upper lip with a disgusting dark fuzz, a fat lower lip, teeth that still looked like baby teeth, 
a pointed chin, and a nose. Oh, what a nose! How gracelessly extended it extended towards the mirror, widening, how dark the caverns on the sides. Were these elements of Aunt Victoria's face, or were they mine, and only mine? Should I expect to get better or get worse? Was my body, the long neck that seemed as if it might break like the filament of a spider web, straight bony shoulders, breasts that continued to swell and had dark nipples, thin legs that came up too high almost to my armpits, me, or the advance guard of my aunt, her, in all her horror? I studied myself and at the same time observed my parents. How lucky I'd been. I couldn't have had better ones. They were good-looking, and they had loved each other since they were young. My father and mother had told me the little I knew of their romance. He, with his usual playful distance, she sweetly emotional. They had always felt such pleasure in being with each other that the decision to have a child had come relatively late, given that they had married very young. When I was born, my mother was 30, and my father had just turned 32. I had been conceived amid countless anxieties, expressed by her aloud, by him to himself. The pregnancy had been difficult, the birth, June the 3rd, 1979, torturous, my first two years of life the practical demonstration that my entering the world had complicated their lives. Worried about the future, my father, a teacher of history and philosophy in the most prestigious high school in Naples, an intellectual fairly well known in the city, beloved by his students, to whom he devoted not only the mornings but entire afternoons, had started to give private lessons. Worried, on the other hand, about the present, my constant nighttime crying, rashes that vexed me, stomach aches, ferocious tantrums, my mother, who taught Latin and Greek in a high school in Piazza Carlo Terzo and corrected proofs of romance novels, had gone through a long depression, becoming a poor teacher and a very distracted proofreader. These were the problems I had caused when I was born. But then I had become a quiet and obedient child and my parents had slowly recovered. The phase in which they tried in vain to spare me from the evils that all human beings are exposed to had ended. They had found a new equilibrium, thanks to which, even if love for me came first, second place was again occupied by my father's studies and my mother's jobs. So what to say? They loved me, I loved them. My father seemed to me an extraordinary man, my mother a really nice woman, and the two of them were the only clear figures in a world that was otherwise confused. A confusion that I was part of. Sometimes I imagined that a violent struggle between my father and his sister was taking place in me, and I hoped that he would win. Of course, I reflected. Vittoria had already prevailed once, at the moment of my birth, since for a while I had been an intolerable child. But then, I thought with relief, I turned into a good little girl, so it's possible to get rid of her. I tried to reassure myself that way and, in order to feel strong, forced myself to see my parents in myself. But especially at night, before going to bed, I would look at myself in the mirror yet again and it seemed I had lost them long ago. 
I should have had a face that synthesized the best of them, and instead I was getting the face of Victoria. I was supposed to have a happy life, and instead an unhappy period was starting, utterly without the joy of feeling the way they had felt, and still did. 6. I tried to find out, after a while, if the two sisters, Angela and Ida, my trusted friends, were aware of any deterioration, and if Angela in particular, who was the same age as me, Ida was two years younger, was also changing for the worse. I needed a gaze that would evaluate me, and it seemed to me that I could count on them. We'd been brought up in the same way by parents who had been friends for decades and had had, this, and had the same views. All three of us, to be clear, had not been baptised, all three didn't know any prayers, all three had been precociously informed about the functioning of our bodies, illustrated books, educational videos with animated cartoons. All three knew that we should be proud of being born female. All three had gone to first grade, not at six, but at five. All three always behaved in a responsible manner. All three had in our heads a dense network of advice useful for avoiding the traps of Naples and the world. All three could turn to our parents at any time to satisfy our curiosities. All three read a lot, and finally, all three had a sensible disdain for consumer goods and the taste of our contemporaries, even though, encouraged by our teachers, we were well informed about music, film, television programs, singers and actors, and in secret, wanted to become famous actresses with fabulous boyfriends, with whom we shared long kisses and genital contact. Of course, the friendship between Angela and me was closer, since Ida was younger, but she could surprise us, and in fact read more than we did and wrote poems and stories. And so, as far as I remember, there were no conflicts between them and me, and if there were, we could speak to each other frankly and make peace. So, considering them reliable witnesses, I questioned them cautiously a couple of times. But they didn't say anything unpleasant. In fact, they seemed to appreciate me quite a bit, and for my part, I thought they seemed to keep getting prettier. They were well proportioned, so carefully modelled that just the sight of them made me feel a need for their warmth, and I hugged and kissed them as if I wanted to fuse them to myself. But one night, when I was feeling down, they happened to come for dinner at San Giacomo del Capri with their parents, and things got complicated. I wasn't in a good mood. I felt especially out of place. Gangling, lanky, pale, coarse in every word and gesture, and therefore ready to pick up allusions to my deterioration, even when there weren't any. For example, Ida asked, pointing to my shoes, Are they new? No, had them forever. I don't remember them. What's wrong with them? Nothing. If you notice them now, it means that now something's wrong. No. Are my legs too thin? We went on like that for a while, they reassuring me, I digging into the re their reassurances to find out if they were serious or hiding behind good manners the ugly impression I'd made. My mother intervened in her wary tone, saying, Giovanna, that's enough, you don't have skinny legs. I was ashamed and shut up immediately, while Costanza, Angela and Ida's mother, emphasized, you have lovely ankles, 
and Mariano, their father, exclaimed, laughing, Excellent thighs! They'd be delicious, roasted with potatoes. He didn't stop there, but kept teasing me, joking constantly. He was that person who thinks he can bring good cheer to a funeral. What's wrong with this girl tonight? I shook my head to indicate that nothing was wrong and tried to smile but couldn't. His way of being funny made me nervous. Such nice hair. What is it? A sorghum broom? Again, I shook my head no, and this time I couldn't hide my annoyance. He was treating me as if I were a child of six. It's a compliment, sweetheart. Sorghum is a plump plant, part green, part red and part black. I responded darkly. I'm not plump or green or red or black. He stared at me in bewilderment, smiled, spoke to his daughters. Why is Giovanna so grim tonight? I'm not grim. Grim isn't an insult. It's the manifestation of a state of mind. You know what that means? I was silent. He again turned to his daughters, pretending to be despondent. She doesn't know, Ida. You tell her. Ida said unwillingly, that you have a scowl on your face. He says it to me too. Mariano was that sort of person. He and my father had known each other since their university days, and because they'd stayed friends, he had always been present in my life. A little heavy, completely bald, with blue eyes, he had impressed me since I was a small child, because his face was too pale and slightly puffy. When he showed up at our house, which was often, he would talk with his friend for hours and hours, inserting into every sentence a bitter discontent that made me nervous. He taught history at the university and contributed regularly to a prestigious Neapolitan journal. He and Papa argued constantly, and even though we three girls understood little of what they were saying, we had grown up with the idea that they had assigned themselves a very difficult task that, that required study and concentration. But, unlike my father, Mariano didn't merely study day and night. He also railed loudly against numerous enemies, people in Naples, Rome and other cities, who wanted to prevent them from doing their work properly. Angela, Ida and I, even if we weren't able to state a position, were always for our parents and against those who didn't like them. But, in the end, in all their discussions, the only thing that had interested us since childhood was the bad words in dialect that Mariano uttered against people who were famous at the time. That was because the three of us, especially me, were not only forbidden to use swear words, but also, more generally, to utter a syllable in Neapolitan. A useless ban. Our parents didn't prohibit us from doing anything, but even when they did, they were indulgent. So, under our breath, just for fun, we repeated to each other the names and last names of Mariano's enemies, accompanied by the obscene epithets we had heard. But while Angela and Ida found that vocabulary of their father merely amusing, I couldn't separate it from an impression of spite. Wasn't there always something malevolent in his jokes? Wasn't there that evening as well? I was grim. I had a scowl on my face. I was a sorghum broom. Had Mariano merely been joking or joking? Had he cruelly spoken the truth? We sat down at the table. 
the adults started a tedious conversation about some friends or other who were planning to move to Rome. We suffered our boredom in silence, hoping that dinner would be over quickly so we could take refuge in my room. The whole time I had the impression that my father never laughed, my mother barely smiled, Mariano laughed a lot, and Costanza, his wife, not too much, but heartily. Maybe my parents weren't having fun like Angela and Ida's, because I had made them sad. Their friends were happy with their daughters, while they were no longer happy with me. I was grim, 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 and just seeing me there at the table kept them from feeling happy. How serious my mother was, and how pretty and happy Angela and Ida's mother. My father was now pouring her some wine. He spoke to her with polite aloofness. Costanza taught Italian and Latin. Her parents were very wealthy and had given her an excellent upbringing. She was so elegant that sometimes my mother seemed to be studying her in order to imitate her, and, almost without realising it, I did the same. How was it possible that that woman had chosen a husband like Mariano? The brilliance of her jewellery, the colours of her clothes, which were always looking perfect, dazzled me. Just the night before I had dreamt that with the tip of her tongue she was lovingly licking my ear like a cat. And the dream had brought me comfort, a sort of physical well-being that for several hours after I woke up had made me feel safe. Now, sitting at the table next to her, I hoped that her good influence would drive her husband's words out of my head. Instead, they lasted for the whole dinner. I have hair that makes me look like a broom. I have a grim face, intensifying my nervousness. I went back and forth between wanting to have fun by whispering dirty expressions in Angela's ear and a bad mood that wouldn't go away. As soon as we finished dessert, we left our parents to their conversation and shut ourselves in my room. And there I asked Ida, without turning around, Do I have a scowl on my face? Do you think I'm getting ugly? They looked at each other. They answered almost simultaneously, Not at all tell the truth. I realised that they were hesitant and Angela decided to speak. A little, but not physically. Physically you're pretty, Ida emphasised. Only you look a little bit ugly because you're anxious. Angela said, kissing me, it happens to me too. When I'm anxious I turn ugly, but then it goes away. 7. That connection between anxiety and ugliness unexpectedly consoled me. You can turn ugly because of worries, Angela and Ida had said. And if the worries go away, you can be pretty again. I wanted to believe that, and I made an effort to have untroubled days. But I couldn't force myself to be calm. My mind would suddenly blur, and that obsession began again. I felt an increasing hostility toward everyone that was difficult to repress with false good humour. And I soon concluded that my worries were not at all transient. Maybe they weren't even worries, but bad feelings that were spreading through my veins. Not that Angela and Ida had lied to me about that. They weren't capable of it. We had been brought up never to tell lies. With that connection between ugliness and anxieties, they had probably been talking about themselves and their experience, using the words that Mariano our heads contained a lot of concepts we heard from our parents, had used, in some circumstance or other, to comfort them.
but Angela and Ida weren't me. Angela and Ida didn't have in their family an Aunt Victoria, whose face their father, their father, had said they were starting to take on. Suddenly one morning at school I felt that I would never go back to being the way my parents wanted me. That cruel Mariana would notice it and my friends would move on to more suitable friendships and I would be left alone. I was depressed and in the following days the bad feelings regained strength. The only thing that gave me a little relief was to stroke myself continuously between my legs, numbing myself with pleasure. But how humiliating it was to forget myself like that, by myself. Afterward, I was even more unhappy, sometimes disgusted. I had a very pleasant memory of a game I played with Angela on the couch at my house, when, in front of the television, we would lie facing each other and twine our legs and silently, without negotiations, without rules, settle a doll between the crotch of my underpants and the crotch of hers, so that we rubbed each other, writhing comfortably, pressing the doll, which seemed alive and happy, hard between us. That was another time. The pleasure didn't seem like a nice game anymore. Now I was all sweaty. I felt deformed. And so day after day I was repossessed by the desire to examine my face and went back even more relentlessly to spending time in front of the mirror. This led to a surprising development. As I looked at what appeared to me defective, I started to want to fix it. I studied my features and pulling on my face thought, look, if I just had a nose like so, eyes like so, ears like so, I'd be perfect. My features were slight flaws that made me sad, touched me. Poor you, I thought, how unlucky you've been. And I had a sudden enthusiasm for my own image, so that once I went as far as to kiss myself on the mouth, just as I was thinking, forlornly, that no one would ever kiss me. So I began to react. I moved slowly from the stupor in which I spent the day studying myself to the need to fix myself up as if I were a piece of good quality material damaged by a clumsy worker. I was I, whatever I, I was, and I had to concern myself with that face, that body, those thoughts. One Sunday morning, I tried to improve myself with my mother's makeup. But when she came into my room, she said, laughing, you look like a carnival mask, you have to do better. I didn't protest, I didn't defend myself. I asked her as submissively as I could, Will you teach me to put on makeup the way you do it? Every face has its own makeup. I want to be like you. She was glad to do it, complimented me, and then made me up very carefully. We spent some really lovely hours joking, laughing with each other. Usually she was quiet, self possessed, but with me, only with me, ready to become a child again. Eventually my father appeared with his newspapers. He was happy to find us playing like that. How pretty the two of you are, he said. Really? I asked. Absolutely. I've never seen such gorgeous women. And he shut himself in his room. On Sunday he read the papers and then studied. But as soon as my mother and I were alone, she asked me, as if that space of a few minutes had been a signal, in a voice that was always a little wary, but seemed to know neither irritation nor fear. 
Why did you go looking in the box of pictures? Silence. She had noticed then that I had been rummaging through her things. She realized that I had tried to scrape off the black of the marker. How long ago? I couldn't keep from crying, even though I fought back the tears with all my strength. Mama, I said between my sobs, I wanted, I believed, I thought, but I was unable to say a thing about what I wanted, believed, thought. I gasped, sobbing, but she couldn't soothe me, and as soon as she said something with a smile of sympathy, there's no need to cry, you should have just asked me, or Papa, and anyway, you can look at the photos when you like. Why are you crying? Calm down. I sobbed even harder. Finally, she took my hands, and it was she herself who said gently, What were you looking for? A picture of Aunt Victoria? 8. I understood at that point that my parents knew that I had heard their conversation. They must have talked about it for a long time. Maybe they even had consulted with their friends. Certainly, my father was very sorry and in all likelihood had delegated my mother to convince me that the sentence I'd heard had a meaning different from the one that might have wounded me. Surely that was the case. My mother's voice was very effective in mending operations. She never had outbursts of rage or even of annoyance. When, for example, Costanza teased her about all the time she was wasting preparing her classes, correcting the proofs of silly stories and sometimes rewriting entire pages. She always responded quietly, with a transparency that had no bitterness. And even when she said, Costanza, you have plenty of money, you can do what you like, but I have to work, she managed to do it in a few soft words without any evident resentment. So who better than her to remedy the mistake? After I calmed down, she said, in that voice, we love you, and she repeated it once or twice. Then she started on a speech that until then she had never made. She said that both she and my father had made many sacrifices to become what they were. She said, I'm not complaining. My parents gave me what they could. You know how kind and affectionate they were. This house was bought at a time with their help. But your father's childhood, adolescence, youth, those for him were truly hard times, because he had nothing at all. He had to climb a mountain with his bare hands. And it's not over. It's never over. There's always some storm that knocks you down, back to where you started. So finally she came to Victoria and revealed to me that, non-metaphorically, the storm that wanted to knock my father down off the mountain was her. Her. Yes, your father's sister is an envious woman. Not envious the way others might be, but envious in a very terrible way. What did she do? Everything. But above all, she refused to accept your father's success. In what sense? Success in life. How hard he worked at school and university, his intelligence, what he had constructed, his degree, his job, our marriage, the things he studies, the respect that surrounds him, the friends we have, you, me too. Yes, there is no thing or person that for Victoria isn't a kind of personal insult. 
But what offends her most is your father's existence. What kind of work does she do? She's a maid. What should she do? She left school in fifth grade. Not that, that there is anything bad about being a maid. You know how good the woman is who helps Costanza in the house. The problem is that she also blames her brother for this. Why? There is no why. Especially if you think that your father saved her. She could have ruined herself even further. She was in love with a married man who already had three children, a criminal. Well, your father, as the older brother, intervened. But she put that too on the list of things she's never forgiven him for. Maybe Papa should have minded his own business. No one should mind his own business if a person is in trouble. Yes, but even helping her was always difficult. She repaid us as destructively as possible. Aunt Victoria wants Papa to die? It's terrible to say, but it's true. And there's no way to make peace? No. To make peace, your father, in Aunt Victoria's eyes, would have to become a mediocre man like the ones she knows. But since that's not possible, she set the family against us. Because of her, after your grandparents died, we couldn't have a real relationship with any of the relatives. I didn't respond in a meaningful way. I merely uttered a few cautious or monosyllabic phrases. But at the same time, I thought with revulsion. So I am taking on the features of a person who wants my father dead, my family ruined, and the tears flowed again. Noticing my mother tried to stop them, she hugged me, murmured, There's no need to feel bad. Is the meaning of what your father said clear now? Eyes lowered, I shook my head energetically. So she explained to me softly, in a tone that was suddenly amused. For us, for a long time, Aunt Victoria has been not a person, but a locution. Sometimes, when your father isn't nice, I scold him jokingly. Be careful, Andrea. You just put on the face of Victoria. And then she shook me lovingly, repeated, It's a playful expression. I muttered darkly, I don't believe it, Mama. I've never heard you talk like that. Maybe not in your presence, but in private, yes. It's like a red signal. We use it to say, look out. It would be all too easy for us to lose everything we wanted for our life. Me too? No, what are you talking about? We will never lose you. You are the person who matters most in the world to us. We want all the happiness possible for your life. That's why Papa and I are so insistent about school. Now you're having some difficulties, but they will pass. You'll see how many great things will happen to you. I sniffled. She wanted to blow my nose with a handkerchief as if I were still a child, and maybe I was, but I avoided it and said, What if I stopped studying? You'd become ignorant. So? So ignorance is an obstacle. But you've already got back on track with studying, haven't you? It's a pity not to cultivate one's intelligence. I exclaimed, I don't want to be intelligent, Mama. I want to be beautiful like the two of you. You'll be much more beautiful. Not if I'm starting to look like Aunt Victoria. You're so different, that won't happen. How can you say that? Who can I ask to find out if it's happening or not? There's me, I'll always be here. That's not enough. What are you proposing? I almost whispered. I have to see my aunt. She was silent for a moment and then she said, For that, you have to talk to your father. 
9. I didn't take her words literally. I assumed that she would talk to him about it first and that my father, as soon as the next day, would say, in the tone I love best, Here we are, at your orders. If the little queen has decided that we have to go and meet Aunt Victoria, this poor parent of hers, albeit with a noose around his neck, will take her. And then he would telephone his sister to make a date. Or maybe he would ask my mother to do it. He never concerned himself in person with what annoyed or irritated or grieved him. And then he would drive me to her house. But that's not what happened. Hours passed, days, and we scarcely saw my father. He was always tired, always torn between school, some private lessons, and a demanding essay that he was writing with Mariano. He left in the morning and returned at night. And in those days it was always raining. I was afraid he'd catch cold, get a fever, and have to stay in bed till who knows when. How is it possible, I thought, that a man so small, so delicate, has fought all his life with Aunt Victoria's malice? And it seemed even more implausible that he had confronted and kicked out the married delinquent with three children, who intended to be the ruin of his sister. I asked Angela, if Ida fell in love with a delinquent who was married with three children, what would you, the older sister, do? Angela answered without hesitation, I'd tell Papa. But Ida didn't like that answer, and she said to her sister, You're a snitch, and Papa says a snitch is the worst thing there is. Angela miffed, answered, I'm not a snitch, I'd only do it for your own good. So if Angela is in love with a delinquent who is married with three children, you won't tell your father. Ida, as an inveterate reader of novels, thought about it and said, I would tell him only if the delinquent is ugly and mean. There, I thought, ugliness and meanness are more important than anything else. And one afternoon, when my father was out at a meeting, I cautiously returned to the subject with my mother. You said we would see Aunt Victoria. I said you had to talk about it with your father. I thought you'd talk to him. He's busy right now. Let's go the two of us. Better if he takes care of it. And then it's almost the end of the school year. You have to study. You two don't want to take me. You've already decided not to. My mother assumed a tone similar to the one she'd used until a few years earlier, when she wanted to be left alone and would propose some game that I could play by myself. Here's what we'll do. You know Via Miraglia? No. And Via della Stradera? No. And the Piante Cemetery? No. And Poggio Reale? No. And Via Nazionale? No. And Aranaccia? No. And the whole area that's called the industrial zone? No, Mama, no. Well, you have to learn, and this is your city. Now, I'll give you the map, and after you've done your homework, you'll study the route. If it's so urgent for you, one of these days you can go by yourself to see Aunt Victoria. That last phrase confused me, and maybe it hurt me. My parents wouldn't even send me by myself to buy bread down the street. And when I was supposed to meet Angela and Ida, my father, or more often my mother, drove me to Mariano and Costanza's house and then came to pick me up. Now, suddenly, 
They were prepared to let me go to unknown places where they themselves went unwillingly? No, no, they were simply tired of my complaining. They considered unimportant what was urgent to me. In other words, they didn't take me seriously. Maybe at that moment, something, somewhere, in my body broke. Maybe that's where I should locate the end of my childhood. I felt as if I were a container of granules that were imperceptibly leaking out of me through a tiny crack. And I had no doubt that my mother had already talked to my father, and, in agreement with him, were preparing to separate me from them, and them from me, to explain to me that I had to deal with my unreasonable, perverse behaviour by myself. If I looked closely behind her kind yet wary tone, she had just said, You're starting to annoy me. You're making my life difficult. You don't study, your teachers complain, and you won't stop this business about Aunt Victoria. Ah, what a fuss, Giovanna. How can I convince you that your father's remark was affectionate? That's enough now. Go and play with the atlas and don't bother me anymore. Now, whether that was the truth or not, it was my first experience of privation. I felt the painful void that usually opens up when something we thought could we could never be separated from is suddenly taken away from us. I said nothing, and when she added, close the door please, I left the room. I stood for a while in front of the closed door, dazed, waiting for her to give me the street atlas. She didn't, and so I retreated, almost on tiptoe, to my room to study. But naturally, I didn't open a book. My head began to pound out, as if on a keyboard, plans that until a moment before had been inconceivable. There's no need for my mother to give me the map. I'll get it, I'll study it, and I'll walk to Aunt Victoria's. I'll walk for days, for months. How that idea seduced me. Sun, heat, rain, wind, cold, and I who was walking and walking, through countless dangers, until I met my own future as an ugly, faithless woman. I'll do it. Most of those unknown street names that my mother had listed had stayed in my mind. I could immediately find at least one of them. Pianto especially went around and round in my head. A cemetery whose name meant weeping must be a very sad place, and so my aunt lived in an area where one felt pain and perhaps inflicted it. A street of torments, a stairway, thorn bushes that scratched your legs, wild, mud-spattered stray dogs with enormous drooling jaws. I thought of looking for that place in the street atlas, and I went out to the hall where the telephone was. I tried to pull out the atlas, which was squeezed between massive telephone books. But as I did so, I noticed on top of the pile the address book in which my parents had written down the numbers they habitually used. How could I not have thought of that? Probably Aunt Victoria's number was in the address book, and if it was there, why wait for my parents to call her? I could do it myself. I took the book, went to the letter V, found no Victoria. So I thought, she has my last name, my father's last name, Trada, and I immediately looked at the T's. There it was, Trada Victoria. The slightly faded handwriting was my father's. The name appeared amid many others, like a stranger. For seconds my pulse raced. I was exultant. 
I seemed to be facing the entrance to a secret passage that would carry me to her without other obstacles. I thought I'll phone her. Right away I'll say I'm your niece Giovanna. I need to meet you. Maybe she'll come and get me herself. We'll set a day, a time, and meet here at the house. Or down at Piazza Van Vitelli. I made sure that my mother's door was closed. I went back to the telephone, picked up the receiver. But just as I finished dialing the number and the phone was ringing, I got scared. It was, if I thought about it, after the photographs, the first concrete initiative I'd taken, that I was taking. I have to ask, if not my mother, my father, one of them has to give me permission. Prudence, prudence, prudence. But I had hesitated too long. A thick voice, like that of one of the smokers who came to our house for long meetings, said, Hello? She said it with such determination, in a voice so rude, with a Neapolitan accent so aggressive, that that hello was enough to terrorise me, and I hung up. I was barely in time. I heard the key turning in the lock. My father was home. 10. I moved a few steps away from the telephone, just as he came in. After setting the dripping umbrella on the landing, after carefully wiping the soles of his shoes on the mat. He greeted me, but uneasily, without the usual cheerfulness, in fact, cursing the bad weather. Only after taking off his raincoat did he concern himself with me. What are you up to? Nothing. Mama? She's working. Did you do your homework? Yes. Is there anything you didn't understand and want me to explain? When he stopped next to the telephone to listen to the answering machine, as he usually did, I realised that I had left the address book open to the letter T. He saw it. He ran a finger over it, closed it, stopped listening to the messages. I hoped he would resort to some joking remark, which would have reassured me. Instead, he caressed my head with the tips of his fingers and went to my mother. Contrary to his usual practice, he closed the door behind him carefully. I waited, listening to them discuss in low voices, a hum with sudden peaks of single syllables. You, no, but. I went back to my room, but I left the door open. I hoped they weren't fighting. At least ten minutes passed. Finally, I heard my father's footsteps again in the hall but not in the direction of my room. He went to his, where there was another telephone, and I heard him telephoning in a low voice, a few indistinguishable words and long pauses. I thought, I hoped, that he had serious problems with Mariano, that he must be discussing the usual things that were important to him, words I'd heard forever, like politics, value, Marxism, crisis, state. When the phone call ended, I heard him in the hall again, but this time he came to my room. In general, he would go through innumerable ironic formalities before entering. May I come in? Where can I sit? Am I bothering you? Sorry. But on that occasion, he sat down on the bed and without preliminaries said in his coldest voice, Your mother has explained to you that I wasn't serious. I didn't mean to hurt you. 
you don't resemble my sister in the least. I immediately started crying again. I stammered, it's not that, Papa. I know, I believe you, but... He didn't seem moved by my tears. He interrupted me, saying, you don't have to explain. It's my fault, not yours. It's up to me to fix it. I just telephoned your aunt. Sunday, I'll take you to see her, all right? I sobbed. If you don't want to, let's not go. Of course I don't want to, but you do and we'll go. I'll drop you off at her house. You'll stay as long as you want. I'll wait outside in the car. I tried to calm down. I stifled my tears. You sure? Yes. We were quiet for a moment. Then he made an effort to smile at me. He dried my tears with his fingers. But he couldn't do it unaffectedly. He slid into one of his long agitated speeches, mixing high and low tones. Remember this, Giovanna, he said. Your aunt likes to hurt me. I've tried in every way to reason with her. I helped her. I encouraged her. I gave her as much money as I could. It was useless. She's taken every word of mine as bullying. Every kind of help she has considered as wrong. She's proud. She's ungrateful. She's, cru she's cruel. So I have to tell you this. She will try to take your affection away from me. She will use you to wound me. She's already used our parents that way, our brothers and sisters, our aunts and uncles and cousins. Because of her, nobody in our family loves me. And you'll see that she'll try to get you too. That possibility, he said, tense as I'd almost never seen him, is intolerable to me. And he begged me, he really begged me. He joined his hands and waved them back and forth to calm my anxieties, anxieties with no basis, but not to listen to her, to put wax in my ears like Odysseus. I hugged him tight, as I hadn't in the past two years, ever since I'd wanted to feel grown up. But to my surprise, to my annoyance, I smelled on him an odour that didn't seem like his, an odour I wasn't used to. It gave me a sense of estrangement that provoked suffering, mixed incongruously with satisfaction. It was clear to me that though until that moment I had hoped that his protection would last forever, now, instead, I felt pleasure at the idea that he was becoming a stranger. I was euphoric, as if the possibility of evil, what he and my mother, in their couple's language, claimed to call Victoria, gave me an unexpected exuberance. 11. I pushed that feeling away. I couldn't bear the guilt. I counted the days that separated me from Sunday. My mother was attentive. She wanted to help me get as much homework done for Monday as possible so that I could face the encounter without the worry of having to study. And she didn't confine herself to that. One afternoon she came into my room with the street atlas, sat down beside me, showed me via San Giacomo del Capri and page by page the whole journey to Aunt Victoria's house. She wanted me to understand that she loved me and that she, like my father, only wanted me to be happy. But I wasn't satisfied with that small topographical lesson and in the days that followed devoted myself secretly to maps of the city. I moved with my index finger along San Giacomo de Capri, reached Piazza Medaglia d'Oro, descended by Via Suarez and Via Salvador Rosa, reached Museo, 
traversed all of Via Fiora to Piazza Carlo Terzo, turned onto Corso Garibaldi, took Via Casanova, reached Piazza Nazionale, turned onto Via Poggio Reale, and then Via della Stadera, and then at the Pianto Cemetery, slid along Via Miraia, Via del Marcello, Via del Poscone, and so on, with my finger veering into the industrial zone, the colour of scorched earth. All those street names and others became in those hours a silent mania. I learned them by heart as if for school, but not unwillingly, and I waited for Sunday with increasing agitation. If my father didn't change his mind, I would finally meet Aunt Victoria. But I hadn't reckoned with the tangle of my feelings. As the days laboriously passed, I surprised myself by hoping, especially at night, in bed, that for some reason the visit would be postponed. I began to wonder why I had forced my parents in that way, why I had wanted to make them unhappy, why I hadn't, hadn't considered their worries important. Since all the answers were vague, the yearning began to diminish, and meeting Aunt Victoria soon seemed to me to be a request both extravagant and pointless. What use would it be to know in advance the physical and moral form that I would likely assume? I wouldn't be able to get rid of the face or the chest anyway, and maybe I wouldn't even want to. I would still be me, a melancholy me, an unfortunate me, but me. That wish to know my aunt should probably be inserted into the category of small challenges. In the end, wasn't it ultimately just another way to test my parents' patience, as I did when we went to a restaurant with Mariano and Costanza, and I always ended up ordering, with the attitude of an experienced woman, and charming little smiles addressed mainly to Costanza, what my mother had advised me not to order, because it cost too much. I then became even more unhappy with myself. Maybe this time I had overdone it. The words my mother had used when she told me about her sister-in-law's hatreds returned to mind. I thought again of my father's worried speech. In the dark, their aversion for that woman was added to the fear instilled by her voice on the telephone, that fierce hello with its dialectal cadence. So, Saturday night, I said to my mother, I don't feel like going anymore. This morning, I got a lot of homework from Monday. But she answered, Now the appointment is set. You don't know how angry your aunt will be if you don't go. She'll blame your father. And since I wasn't convinced, she said, that I had already fantasized too much. And even if I backed off now, the next day I would have second thoughts and we'd be right where we started. She concluded with a smile. Go and see what and who Aunt Victoria is, so you will do all you can not to be like her. After days of rain, Sunday was beautiful, with a blue sky and occasional little white clouds. My father made an effort to return to our usual light-hearted relationship, but when he started the car he became silent. He hated the ring road and got off it quickly. He said he preferred the old street, and as we made our way into another city, 
made up of rows of small, bleak apartment buildings, faded walls, industrial warehouses and sheds, gashes of green overflowing with garbage of every sort, deep puddles filled by the recent rain, putrid air. He became increasingly sombre. But then he seemed to decide that he couldn't leave me in silence, as if he had forgotten about me and for the first time mentioned his origins. I was born and grew up in this neighbourhood here, he said with a broad gesture that embraced, beyond the windshield, walls of tufa, grey, yellow and pink apartment buildings. My family was poor. We didn't even have two cents to rub together. Then he drove into an even bleaker neighbourhood, stopped, sighed with irritation, pointed to a brick building whose facade was missing large pieces of plaster. Here's where I lived, he said, and where Aunt Victoria still lives. I looked at him, frightened. He noticed. What's wrong? Don't go. I won't move. What if she keeps me? When you're tired, you'll say, I have to go now. What if she doesn't let me go? I'll come and get you. No, don't. I'll come. All right. I got out of the car and went through the entrance. There was a strong odour of garbage mixed with the aroma of Sunday sauces. I didn't see an elevator. I climbed up uneven broken steps, beside walls showing broad, wide wounds, one so deep it seemed like a hole dug out to hide something. I avoided deciphering obscene sayings and drawings. I had other urgencies. My father had been a child and a boy in this building. I counted the floors. On the third I stopped, and there were three doors. The one on my right was the only one that displayed a surname, and pasted to the wood was a strip of paper on which was written in pen, Trada. I rang the bell and held my breath. Nothing. I counted slowly to forty. My father told me, some years earlier, that whenever you're in, you're in a state of uncertainty, you should do that. When I got to 41, I rang again. The second electrical charge seemed exaggeratedly loud. A shout in dialect reached me, an explosion of hoarse sounds, and God damn it, what's the hurry, I'm coming. Then decisive steps, a key that turned four times in the lock. The door opened. A woman dressed all in blue appeared, tall, with a great mass of very black hair arranged on her neck, as thin as a post, and yet with broad shoulders and a large chest. She held a lighted cigarette between her fingers. She coughed and said, moving back and forth between Italian and dialect, What's the matter? You're sick? You have to pee? No. Why did you ring twice? I murmured, I'm Giovanna, aunt. I know you're Giovanna. But if you call me aunt again, you better turn right around and get out of here. I nodded yes. I was frightened. I looked for a few seconds at her face, without makeup, and then stared at the floor. Victoria seemed to me to have a beauty so unbearable that to consider her ugly became a necessity. <laughs>